Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to wherever you are tuning in from, and welcome to this special episode of HemeCast to celebrate World Hemophilia Day. I'm your host, Luke Pembroke, Communications Officer at HemeNet, and today I'm going to be speaking to several members of the UK Bleeding Disorders community about how they have had to adapt to change over the past year, in keeping with this year's theme. First up, it's my pleasure to introduce Deborah Pollard, Director of Education at HemeNet and Haemophilia Nurse Specialist. So Deborah, happy World Haemophilia Day. Welcome back to, to HemeCast. Obviously this time you are not playing host, but today we're going to be talking about this year's theme, Adapting to Change. Having had some chats with you over the year and, uh, and finding out how you've been keeping things going in your clinic, I just wanted you to share what that experience has been like and how you've had to adapt to change a bit of an unexpected year not just for us but for everybody um i suppose the first change for me was that um personally i had to shield and so i was a clinician at heart with a clinical service in my head to run and i had to be thinking about that from home which was really challenging to start with you know as the pandemic hit towards the end of March last year and we were in a hospital where the numbers were growing very rapidly early on so the outpatient clinical services routine care was shutting down very quickly and we really had to evaluate what it was we did and in the very first instance naively we said oh we just won't do any clinics for a few weeks we'll be fine we'll catch up obviously that was naive and then we had to really look at what we could do to support our patients. We were, as a service, constantly open. We never closed. Um, Our working time stayed the same, but we were open really for emergency or urgent care um, and our routine care, such as um, annual reviews or six monthly reviews or, Um, routine appointments with our physiotherapists really did have to stop for a considerable amount of time right through till the middle of last summer so somewhere around um, August when things in the UK started to open up again and and we were able to um, resume some of our services again. So in that time, we were using um, video calling for clinics. Well, remind me, what's the name of the, you, you have a specific NHS one, right? It's not Zoom. I can't remember the name. Yeah, we have one called Attend Anywhere. And um, very typically, Deborah, I'd seen lots of emails about this pre-pandemic, the year before last, when it would have been such a sensible thing for me to explore. Um, however... As usual, I hadn't, um, (laughs) and we were exploring it very rapidly. I was really grateful to one of my physiotherapy colleagues, Rich Davis, who did take the lead on this for the centre and for the service and got us up and running technically. And Mm. for some patients, that was really welcome. They really enjoyed being able to see the team as well as talk to the team. At the same time, there are some patients who found it really technically challenging or who didn't actually have access to uh, internet services or a laptop or a smartphone. Yeah. And so for them, we continued via telephone. 
But all in all, again, our physios managed to pick up people that were ringing with any musculoskeletal issues and they would arrange to speak to them separately, either by phone or preferably by attend anywhere, because then they could really give them examples of their, yeah. their physical exercise that they wanted to take place. They could also do a better assessment. Of course. I mean, I, speaking personally, I spoke with Rich at the start of the year using Attend Anywhere. It's the first time I'd obviously used it because I'd been in the centre all of last year for the trial. But seeing Rich, just to, just to have that immediate contact with a physio, which is hard to do normally, you know, booking an appointment, trying to find the right time to come up and, and talk about something that you think in your head's maybe only a minor niggle. I was just able to jump on Zoom, or not Zoom, Attend Anywhere and show him what, was going on with my shoulder and he gave me you know a couple of light exercises to do and just sort of gave me that reassurance that it wasn't anything too nasty and being able to get it on demand like that I thought was amazing so I don't know about you but I hope a lot of the stuff that's sort of had to happen because of the pandemic sticks around. Absolutely 100% I think that if we'd had time and we planned changes to services we'd have probably taken two years to plan introduction of that. And we did it almost, you know, within a couple of weeks. But it's a very good thing that's come out of um, everything that we've had to do. I would say that some services have, have slipped a bit. So some people that aren't reviewed as regularly may have had their review slip in time. Um, I know that people are terribly frustrated and, and we are frustrated on their behalf that some planned surgical procedures and other procedures were postponed and are still postponed. Mm. And there's going to be a long catch up period for those. And of course, for those people, they they might really be struggling with their pain um, and their mobility while they're waiting and they express their frustration to us. So we express our frustration to perhaps the admissions team or the surgical team. And there's quite a, you know, for all of us, there have been things that we would have loved to have gone more smoothly, but haven't. I just think everybody's kept the best service they could going for as long as they could keep it going. And for me, I probably got to speak to more of our cohort of people with severe and moderate haemophilia because um, at one point in time, I was doing the clinic on my own while colleagues from home because colleagues were shoring up the service in the centre and, and in the wider hospitals. They remember that Centre staffs throughout the country have been redeployed or deployed doing different things within yeah. their own services. So in our service, we had to absorb some um, non-malignant haematology work that we wouldn't normally do. And, and the nurses and uh, other staff have had to have some retraining or some additional training. Speaking a little bit more personally, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Deborah, but as an old school haemophilia nurse, you know, you've seen so much happen over the time you've been in haemophilia, lots of change. And obviously, this is a pretty significant point in time. What do you think's been the biggest challenge trying to find this new way to work? I had a lot of excitement. We had, um, we'd gone to EHAD. We had great plans as we went into 
clinical practice when we came back from EHAD that we'd be rolling out more extended half-life products. Um, we were looking forward to perhaps more products coming on license, coming onto the formulary in the near future. Our gene therapy program uh, and that of many others had to be halted during the pandemic and uh, lots of other clinical trials were closed to recruitment because of the pandemic. So there was really a halt in progress, which was such a shame because we were just at that tipping point of great um, progress in treatment and management of haemophilia. And it's not been lost. Mm. It's all still there. It's trickled through. Some centres have been able to continue to uh, offer patients the chance to switch. Because of some of the issues I've already discussed with you about space and the limitations of that, we really felt that with a few exceptions, it wasn't the right time to bring people into our centre for a pharmacokinetic study, for example, to enable their switching, putting either them at risk or the staff at risk if they were bringing COVID in with them. Coming out of it, I'd like to say, as, as you've already raised, you know, some of the things that we had to do were things we considered doing we'd have had to go through lots of hoops and loops to get them in place. And actually, we've got them now. There will never, ever be, in my opinion, uh, a reason to totally replace face-to-face -face care, <laughs> remote care. But um, I do think that there's space for blended methods of care. It's been great to get an insight into how you and the team at the Royal Free have had to adapt to things, overcome the difficulties, but also spin a lot of positives out of it. Yeah, and it's a massive team effort. You know, I wasn't there delivering hands-on care, which I have done for 39 years. Well, I haven't done haemophilia for 39 years, although sometimes it feels it. But um, <laughs> And, you know, I, I took a decision to step back. Um, and in October, I stepped back from full-time clinical care and have been working part-time ever since. So um, it really is about a team. And I think you hear that more and more if you look at the really good contributions um, around the world, not just the UK, but around the world from treaters. They will talk about the team and they will talk about the team that includes the patient and family group as well. And I think that that's really important that taking what we've learned that we've had to learn forward we have to do it together and pick the good bits that worked well leave behind some of the stuff that didn't work well for everybody but very much as a team absolutely couldn't agree more thank you very much for your time deborah i'm now very happy to introduce rich gorman a dedicated patient advocate and research fellow at brighton and sussex medical school happy world haemophilia day rich and welcome to hemecast I always say Happy World Haemophilia Day, which seems a bit weird sometimes. I know it's about celebrating the community, but it's it's always weird to me that we say Happy World Haemophilia Day. This is a thing, you know, haemophilia exists. I, I don't know about you. I always find it quite funny when I say it like it's a birthday or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it usually comes around really close to my birthday. So, uh, you know, let's say you draw, draw the events together. Um, <laughs> When's your no, birthday? It, uh, the 19th of April. 
I'm 22nd. Obviously, something you know, in the water around uh, born. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I think it's a really cool way to kind of you know, reclaim and celebrate you know, that kind of identity of, of having haemophilia. And um, you know, that it isn't this this kind of stigmatised thing, actually. It's, it's something that we can be kind of, you know, we actually have a really cool community. And um, you know, we, we make friends through it as well. Exactly that. It's a you know, celebration in the community. And uh, of course, every year we have a theme theme for this year is adapting to change and i wanted to bring you in on this episode to sort of get your perspective as someone who lives with hemophilia and how you've found the experience of the past year i've been very much in my sort of like trial bubble and it's kind of an echo chamber so i don't know how the rest of my fellow hemophilia brethren have been uh, have been faring throughout it all. I've never really stopped to ask, so I just yeah, I wanted to uh, to get your perspective, man, and and see how you've been you've been finding it. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's been strange. Like I mean, obviously you're locked down and kind of not really leaving the house and um, not going to the pub and having maybe a few pints too many and then kind of <laughs> f- falling over has been really good for for my kind of you know, annual bleed rate. Um, and 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 it's, it's only now that you, you kind of start to reflect on it and go, oh wow, that that was a really good year is is it because actually you know, my hemophilia is better under control or is it because i didn't leave the house mm. um so that i think that's you know, one that's going to stay with us in our kind of you know, medical records for a long time and um yeah i keep having to say to my consultant like yeah i've not had a bleed for a long time but i've also not been the gym for a long time or yeah. anything like that exactly. um so you yeah, don't get too excited just yet <laughs> um it's so true. Someone's got to analyze the data of the haemophilia cohort, at least within the UK, and just see, because, you know, we've had fairly strict uh, lockdowns multiple times. Won't go into it. But uh, yeah, I wonder, you know, what what's the annual be- bleed rate, the average annual bleed rate for people with severe haemophilia across the UK? That would be super interesting to see. <laughs> you, raise, you raise a very valid point there. That's, yeah, that's an interesting one. But it's been tough because they always say, you know, obviously being physical benefits you in a lot of ways when you're a haemophiliac but you know on the flip side if you think about the old school way of managing haemophilia where it was like lock them away indoors don't let them do anything we've all had to kind of go back to that i guess i mean i think that's the worrying thing for me is 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 what happens actually this year you know once we've left lockdown and actually you know I, I, i start to be active again and um that's that's the more concerning aspect rather than you know the the last year of, of staying in yeah i mean hopefully you know our consultants don't start thinking actually a really good way to manage these guys is crack open another, another pandemic yeah exactly touch wood thinking about the theme of adapting to change i know that you know towards the end of last year where we had that small window of some things allowed to to happen i came and did some filming with you and you know standing around in my mask all day and then you you obviously just moved uh, across the country for work and everything so lots of change going on in in your life how have you managed the haemophilia throughout the past year is it you know apart from obviously not being able to go out and not having any bleeds is there any any ways you think you've managed things differently than you normally would yeah i mean i I wouldn't recommend moving across the country in a pandemic um (laughs) not not one of my greatest life choices but you know <laughs> these are the things we millennials have to have to endure but you know it's, it's part, part of that that involved changing hemophilia center and um, so you know i, I changed hemophilia center 
uh, and then haven't actually met any of the the new staff, um, you know, the doctors, physios, nurses. So that's been a really kind of surreal experience um, because you know we, we we do build kind of very personal relationships with a lot of the you know, healthcare professionals that that we work with. So to to sort of suddenly just kind of know someone over the phone or or, or on paper. That, that that's been quite tricky um you know i think moving center is always challenging but without having that kind of induction or you know, t- chance to go in and meet everyone and and, and you know, understand what the kind of local culture of the center's like and see how good their waiting room is yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah 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 you know you can't you can't do anything like that yeah. um so so that's been strange um but then, you know, on the on the other hand, you know, so much of human family care this year has has, has really been uh, your telephone consultations, and as someone that's kind of always ended up living in quite strange and far away rural places, that's that's been really cool. I think you know, I was saying to you the other day that you my my trip to my human family centre used to be kind of like three and a half hours each way. Uh, so to to suddenly just like have a phone call and and it be done like. It was amazing, um, and I think you know, the kind of embrace of telemedicine by um, your know, hemophilia specialists is, is 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 really exciting, and I think you know, that's something that I hope we can continue to see. Obviously, it'll be really good to go back into the centres and have that face to face contact, and you do all the stuff that needs to be done in person. But I hope we you know, we've proved that you know, some stuff can can be done you know, virtually. Um, you know, I've had I've had great your telephone consult- video consultations where I've been trying to you know, show show my doctor's strange bruises that have <laughs> appeared over over video link and, and we've all been you know, trying to contort ourselves to to make that happen. Get the lighting right, the angles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah that I think it's showing that it can work and you know, we don't need to go back to this kind of right, you know, get yourself to the centre straight away just for a chat. Like actually maybe we can do things over the phone. So that's been really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I was speaking to Deborah earlier and the way she put it is that we hope moving forwards there will be this blended approach. There's some things that you just have to get done in person and there's that element of care that you really only get the the maximum benefit from seeing people. And like you say, especially when moving to a new centre, for example, you, you know, having that sort of rapport and being able to meet the person in person would then probably make it easier for future video video consultations as well. So in terms of another type of change, you know, it's all it's all being talk about coronavirus and how that's forced change and whatnot. But I think haemophilia is an area that's been undergoing a lot of change across many different areas over the last you know, five years at least, probably longer than that, but the last five years in particular to me stand out as like this sudden acceleration in, in new treatments coming to the to the forefront. I know that you uh, have switched to emesuzumab. Uh, I don't, you'll have to rem- remind me how long ago it is now. Timelines just don't mean anything to me anymore after the past year. But I, I just wondered how how's that been as a change for you? Because it's uh, anecdotally i hear from other people who've who've switched on to emmy and they you know they talk about it in such amazement a lot of the time because it's so different and it's so much changed to what they were used to i i i'd be interested to hear how how your experience with it has been uh, if you if you're willing to share first off i think you you get a gold star for pronunciation um, I, 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 st- I still mangle it every time i say it so um i'll just call it emmy for short because I- that's what that's what all the 
all the nurses and docs I hear it call call it Emmy. It's, it's, it's catchy. Kids doing it then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it was it was around the end of 2019, I think, awesome 2019, which seems like it was only yesterday rather than like you know 18 months ago. So yeah, I mean, so I I, I used to be you know, treating every single day with with prophylaxis. So you know, I was in- injecting every day, you know, 30 injections um, a month. So to suddenly go from from that to two a month is is like. I mean, you, you, you can't even really. Be, well, you 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 probably can because you've been <laughs> kind of similar similar thing yourself. But it, it's kind of an amazing change, um, and it just gives me so much more time back in the morning. Like I'm not a morning person. I'm usually mm-hmm. forget to do it. Um, so just to know that actually, it's done. That's it. See you in two weeks. I mean, it's it's a really different technology. Um, like it's you know, it's not intravenous, which is cool. But again, when you've been doing that kind of intravenous stuff your whole life, it's it's a really strange change. Um, and like one one thing I found quite weird is you, when you're injecting IV, you 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 know it's going in the right place. Yeah, you know if you're in a vein, you know about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like with with, with your Emmy, it's it's subcut. It's just kind of jab and go and and you just kind of like oh i hope that's gone where it's meant to like i mean it, it, it's it's gone somewhere but like there's there's no kind of you can't draw blood back and check that you're, you're the needle's in the right place it just goes in yeah so that's a real kind of when you've had you know, 30 years of of, of kind of you know, doing intravenous injections and knowing how to do it properly and making sure it's going right to suddenly get this you, you and, and it's really advanced it's really simple but to trust in that kind of simplicity is it, it, it takes it takes a lot um it takes a while to begin to have that faith in it that it's working because it just seems crazy that my entire life I've, I've been having to inject kind of you know, every day or you know, multiple times a week and that's something i do once a fortnight has the same level of you know it's not even the same liquid it, it doesn't go in the same place you, it, it's so bizarre you and everyone's like, no, no, it does the same. But just to begin to actually believe in it yourself, it took me a long time. Yeah, um, I can, I and then can like, like we were saying earlier, it, it, it's really been confounded by the whole COVID situation because everyone's like, oh, yeah, it seems to be working really well. And it's like, well, yeah, but I, like like you, I've not really rotested it properly. It's it's not had the kind of, you know, going to the gym, going to the pub, going traveling on it. Um so, yeah, it's going to be really interesting again. And I think it's, it's made the kind of transition to that new treatment um, a longer kind of more anxious journey than it, than it normally would be to transition treatments. Yeah, of course. You know, it's sort of that stretch timeline now. And, and yeah, like, I th- yeah go- being able to get out and, and road test it is, yeah, couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't put it a better way, to be honest. You hear everything spoken about at conferences about how, amazing results are looking and how cool this technology is but people like you who are on the receiving end of it and it's so vastly different and such a big change to what you've been used to your whole life it's going to take some time to to adapt to that for sure so hopefully not too long until you can finally get out and road test it in the gym and in the pub and going traveling oh I, yeah going traveling without having to carry boxes and boxes of factor with you yeah i mean that that is gonna like yeah you know, it completely changed things. Um, yeah, I mean, you treating treating every day meant like just you know, going going somewhere for like two weeks was like a whole suitcase full of factor, and and now it's just like these two tiny little vials that potentially would would do the same. It's yeah, it will be revolutionary. 
it's it's cool stuff and yeah the more stories i hear the more the more excited i get for my hemophilia a compatriots so <laughs> thank you very much for for joining this hemecast rich it's been great to have you on and, and hear about your experience from a you know patient perspective over the past year and how you've had to adapt to the changes that have gone on and how a lot of it's not really being able to do anything i guess which is one of the the hardest changes to adapt to i think suddenly not being able to do much at all when we're told constantly you need to be out doing stuff when you've got hemophilia it's good for you so yeah it's uh, it's been great chatting to you so i appreciate that oh, brilliant well always happy to talk about it it's been really fun and always lovely to talk to you thanks very much rich so now we are going to take a trip up north to speak with April Jones, who is a haemophilia nurse specialist at the Newcastle Haemophilia Centre. Welcome, April. I wanted to bring you in on this hemecast for World Haemophilia Day because, as you may know, this year's theme is adapting to change. And at least within the UK haemophilia community, I think anyone who's switched on and involved in advocacy and the wide world of haemophilia will have seen that the Newcastle team had quite a intense experience, to put it lightly or understate it. And I, I wanted to, to just get your insights on it and if you could share what, what happened, what went on and, and, and why it was so significant. Yeah, so we, we were um, forced into some change, uh, like many people, as a result of the pandemic. Um, and we were asked to vacate our department on a temporary basis for what was going to be dubbed the silver planning team or um, you know covid planning team and uh, so we were quickly moved to the freeman hospital which is a different location and uh, very quickly packed up our belongings and shipped out uh, that meant that adults and children initially were going to be seen in a different location um, and we did our very best to maintain the service that we provide. Uh, and then we were very keen to get back to the RVI, which is our base site uh, for multiple reasons, but predominantly to enable the children's services to continue in the way that, you know, we have them. Um, and so it was deemed to be inappropriate really to have the children being seen at the Freeman. So then there was a time where the children were being separate uh, to our service and we were having to to and fro and see them wherever they are. Uh, but all the while trying to maintain the very best service that we could. So when we eventually, with huge support from our patient, from the haemophilia community, some of our patients, not just our patients that are registered with us, but with others further afield providing support and uh, you know kind of campaigning and advocating on our behalf really to try and help us to get back to the RVI uh, that was that was able to happen but again not back into our existing space which had been given to another department um, for the duration that we were out so we we then moved back to the RVI site but we had children being seen in the pediatric um, area and adults in this very very small three-roomed uh, area where we could see um, patients as and when we needed to but um, it, it became a challenge really and uh, we were obviously like many people patients weren't able to come into the department as often as they might we were trying to reduce the footfall into the hospital and um, some staff had been redeployed to other areas for um, for for different reasons so yeah it, it was challenging to have a very small environment where we used to well, in fact, our peer review had identified that our space was quite small 
anyway, like where mm. we used to be. So not necessarily uh, as big as we'd want to, but going from that to to having three rooms to see patients was was challenging. And I always, when we packed up, I used to keep using the analogy that we felt like we'd move from a house to a flat to a box because each time we had four different relocations and in total and every time we had to repack up that was exhausting for the staff to have to do that and pack up your belongings and each time we kind of worked out what do we need this time let's be more ruthless let's be let's bring less so we were kind of moving from house to flat to cardboard box it felt like so all the time we were having to adapt to a different environment but we're back in our center we're really glad about that at the moment we're not seeing children in the haemophilia center per se they're still being seen on a different area in the pediatric department for those patients that come with an acute bleed um, or for clinic reviews they're being seen in in a, a pediatric designated area which is great for them but we're uncertain as to how the service is going to continue long term because we're not sure whether we we were always an integrated service we always had pediatrics and adults in our same service with the same team which we feel is a benefit we like that i think the patients like that and we um we're not sure long term how that's going to look because we don't know whether the kids will ever be able to get back onto this department or whether we're going to stay a separate service so that in that respect we don't have an answer to that yet but fingers crossed positive outcomes soon but it it sounds like that that uncertainty must be a a big challenge i imagine especially when you've got your patient group asking questions as well and and you don't even know exactly what's going to happen yet and we were having to be quite careful about you know we don't we didn't have a lot of those answers and when we were moving we have to try and reassure patients that we are here if you've got an acute bleed we can still see you we've still got the services that are there for you um clinics have looked a bit different we've had to um do a lot of telephone clinic reviews which some patients have loved other people not so much but for those patients that we have needed to see face to face we have been still seeing them face to face and gradually that's starting to pick up a little bit now which is good um but yeah, we have always been available. I think there's been, at the very beginning of the pandemic, there's been that aspect where patients were quite reluctant to seek help in a hospital for anything, whether that be cancer treatment or, um, you know, whatever it was, there's this, oh, well, I, I must only go to hospital if I think I've got COVID. Mm. And that was never the situation. We'd always want patients to come and seek help if they needed it. Um, and we tried to reassure patients that we are here and we, we still provide that level, perhaps not the comprehensive level of service that we did before the pandemic at the moment but um but certainly for those patients that need us in an acute situation where we're always there and always available yeah it sounds it sounds tough and i i i've heard this similar sort of issue raised with with carers across the the uk that they were worried about patients having problems particularly acute problems and suddenly not getting in touch like they usually would because they figured that hospitals were so overloaded and that that their problem wouldn't be a priority but as you say the haemophilia teams were still there for them and i can imagine it must have been an added layer of difficulty for you given that you were having to as you say continuously move around and you know not only moving into a box but it sounds like you guys were pretty much working out of boxes because you sort of had that uncertainty of you know where are we going to be next which groups of patients are we going to see where and and trying to do that whilst also encourage your your usual group of patients to not be shy and get in touch if they have a problem 
I think the anxiety that a lot of people have felt are still feeling during this, you know, global problem that we're having has been one of the biggest challenges is to to just provide that reassurance to patients that yes we understand that you know you're having to come to a different environment and even even if it's a different hospital and they're not used to having to get to that site you know it's across the city and you know even just explain to people look you know where possible if you're really struggling we'll get you a taxi in to get to us you know it's not a problem we can get you here and we just need to get you here as and when you need to Um, and even changing slight changes to the service in that you know whereas before we might have always done bloods prior to clinic you know they might have had to go to a phlebotomy clinic for instance you know to get their bloods ahead of so that they're literally coming in for your blood test and out and not hanging around for ages in a hospital. And, you know, those sort of subtle changes which have happened, some have enjoyed that, some have not. But ultimately, we've, we've tried to make sure that we maintain, you know, if you, if you need to see a doctor, you're going to see a doctor. If you need to see a nurse or a physio, you're going to see them when you need to. Um, those patients that have come from further afield who, you know, a lot of, a lot of patients have switched to a telephone review now um, and maybe just once every six months they might see the doctor but uh, whereas before they might have seen the doctor all the time those patients that might come once a year for their follow-up are actually quite liking that because they may not have always seen a great value in coming to see a doctor once a year to say hi how's everything everything's been fine right I'll see you in a year you know that for them is much better you know to not have to drive over from Cumbria to, to Newcastle um, to to do that is is beneficial so that's been one of those changes that will continue for some patients but um yeah it's it's getting back here and feeling like we've come home is great um and we've absolutely been more ruthless moving back in all of our stuff's come back out of storage and we've been like now nah, we didn't we haven't we haven't used that for a year get rid of it we don't need it <laughs> things like that so it's been a bit of a, a spring declutter definitely i was gonna say a bit of a hemophilia center spring cleaning to uh to celebrate moving back into the to the old house and you you read my mind because Obviously, the the changes that haemophilia care has seen across the UK because of the pandemic have affected lots of different people. But I think the Newcastle Centre obviously experienced one of the most extreme versions of that with all the moving you described. But my my follow-up question was going to be, do you think there's anything positive that's come out of it? And you obviously spoke about those patients who are now finding the benefit in having those regular checkups that they can do remotely well, I think I think there are mixed views amongst some patients, and I think those they'll look. You'll never be able to please everybody, in, but at the moment we're just making the best that we can, and you know ultimately want to provide safe care for our patients. So that's what we're having to deal with at the minute. But yeah, I think some patients will like the changes, and others will not. Um, but in, in much the same way as the staff, some staff might like the changes, and some staff might not. But we just have to make the very best of what we've got, and I think we just do that. I think we just. We adapt to change quite well uh, as nurses. We see it every day. We have to, some of it we like, some of it's forced on us, some of it we create ourselves, um, but we just like that and we just get on with it. Um, and I think that's what we're having to do for, for our patients because ultimately that's what we do is we put our patients first. So I think we'd all agree that the Newcastle team have had quite a year when it comes to adapting to change perhaps one of the more extreme examples out there in the community, but credit to them for sticking at it and continuing to deliver excellent care for their patients. Now, I am pleased to introduce a member of the HemeNet team 
Sandra Dodgson, who is heading up Project Phoenix. So let's find out a little bit more about that. Sandra, welcome to Hemecast. And what do we refer to you as, Sandra? What's the title that you always tell people you are as part of the HemeNet team? Well, the title I refer to or the title you all gave me? (laughs) (laughs) You embraced it. Um, Creative interference, I think, was the phrase that we use, isn't it? Creative interference, yes, I believe so. And that's probably why you're the best person to be heading up a lot of the Project Phoenix stuff that's been going on, which I wanted to ask you about because this year's theme for World Haemophilia Day is adapting to change. And that's very much what Project Phoenix is about. And you've been speaking to a lot of different people across the community over the last few months now. And I wanted to get the pit stop tour through what's been going on with Project Phoenix so far. I'm sure we could talk about it for hours, but we don't have hours. <laughs> so what's been going on? Project Phoenix, what's it about? What have you been hearing? And and why is it important? So in answer to those, um, the what's it about is about taking all the analysis that was done in a peer review, the recommendations in the APPG, and talking to a broad range of patients, family members and clinicians and members of the clinical team is to identify those small changes that support or amplify what's already underway. One, to to kind of begin to help reduce those inequities in care that were shown in the peer review um, that, you you know, the work that UK HCDO commissioned was really, really helpful as a kind of, this is where we're at. And then it's about saying, well, the APPG has laid out a series of recommendations that built on the peer review, but what can we actually do as opposed to, and what we're not intending to do is to produce yet another report. It's actually about working with the teams, working and hearing from the, the patients and their families and saying, this is what we could do as HemeNet. This is what UKHCDO might want to do. This is what the Haemophilia Society and the other national organisations might want to kind of focus on. The project itself is the beginning of something as opposed to the end of something. Yeah. Um, and we're already hearing lots of really practical and possible ideas that could be taken forward. We're continuing to kind of hear the ideas, continuing to hear what people think, but over the coming months, it's about honing those ideas into, actually, this is, this is one that could work. This is something that there's enough people want to do something about, but there's already lots and lots of really good practice out there. And I think one of the issues is about sharing practice. And I know that UKHCDO are trying to do something around that it, one of the physios was saying that their idea is how do we do those really short and informative ways of describing and sharing things that is beyond just a document which I know is a lot of what you do in terms of within HemeNet it's... and now the cat has arrived yeah we have a we have a special guest no no don't oh Sandra has removed the cat that's upsetting. You should have you should have uh, let her have her say. Um, she would have her say for a very long time and very loudly. <laughs> yeah. 
given all the things that we we hope will come out of project felix uh, i know a large part of the focus has been on examples of things that we're seeing in in practice and a lot of that has also come out of the situation over the past year of the pandemic and that almost forced certain changes to have to take place and and now we're hoping that it's something that will be carried forwards even post pandemic are there any examples that stand out to you about some of the conversations you've had of interesting things that people are doing that you think really has has some legs to it and and will hopefully continue moving forwards obviously the arrival of covid brought the switch to remote kind of working whether that was by telephone or video and running clinics and i think what we're hearing is the, the beginning to kind of really think about how do we retain some of that because actually that works for some people but actually use it in a mixed way with face-to-face with home visits in order that we can individualize care in some ways with all the new treatments etc beginning to explore individualized treatment is one thing but what we're hearing more of is how do you individualize the whole of, the, of an individual's care and having access to some of the things that happened as a result of COVID, but using them in a a more flexible way is what people are looking to do. So that's, I think, fits with the theme about sustaining care because it's saying it's opened up the toolbox. It's opened up the possibilities. And I I guess that really emphasises why Project Phoenix is, is so important because it's really deep diving into all of these different areas and, and uncovering some of these adaptations that people have made and and these tools that people are now using and the only way we hear about that is if everyone's contributing sharing their practice and i think project phoenix is working as a really good delivery mechanism for that yeah it has that huge potential and i think also and everybody knows this is it's creating the space and time to bring about change is often one of the barriers and so if we can re- in a sense like catalyst if what we can do is reduce the hurdle you have to go over by providing resources or securing support or supporting other people to find support that's how things start to change you kind of need to recognize just how important it is for people to have those support mechanisms in place to encourage them and support them to make the changes that they would like to see within the services having the contributions from not only clinicians but also people living with bleeding disorders and their families is is giving it that really well-rounded approach that that's definitely required certainly talking to um, people with bleeding disorders and and their families makes it real because the, the kind of question that i'm really interested in is what will make a difference to how you live your life you know yes you can talk about what you currently get yes you can talk about what you think about it what would be the kinds of things that would make a real difference? And then how does that map across with what centres are able to do in a post-COVID world where NHS resources are going to continue to be challenged? Of course, links to the survey and how you can get involved and more information about Project Phoenix will be in the description of this episode. So I do encourage you to check it out if you are part of the Bleeding Disorders community, which if you are listening to this i assume you are if you are just some random person who stumbled across hemecast and has no idea about hemophilia listen to all of our other ones shameless self-promotion and plug there 
But I just wanted to thank you for uh, giving us that whistle stop tour through Project Phoenix so far and what what we hope to do with it because I know it's such an ambitious and big project. So for me to put you on the spot and go give me the spiel in about 10 minutes is is mean of me. Especially when you know how much I can talk. (laughs) No comment, Sandra, no comment. Thanks, Luke, because I think it's, I mean, for me, the driver is is really supporting that shift and supporting whoever needs to make it. Thank you very much to Sandra and Sandra's cat for joining us on this Heemcast. Uh, it was uh, great to have you both on. And now to head south of the Thames, the right side of the river, <laughs> to speak to another haemophilia nurse specialist, Wandai Maposa. Welcome, Wandai. Thanks for joining me on this World Haemophilia Day Hemecast, and I'm very glad to be able to invite you on to talk about your experience as a, a specialist haemophilia nurse. I know that it's not too long ago that you had a, a fairly big change yourself, moving to the right side of the river, as I like to call it, South London, born and raised. Yeah. So I will always claim that's the best part of London. And I know that you, you changed between haemophilia centres. I imagine going to St. George's Hospital and, and joining the haemophilia team there, and then very quickly things went a bit wild in the world with the whole pandemic. So I wanted to ask you how it's been and and how your practice might have had to change and how you and your team have been handling things. Um, like you rightly said, um, it was a bit of a rocky start because soon after I started here, then the pandemic came and lockdown. Main thing I think change was being told that uh, within the first lockdown, when things just started getting out of control, being told that we needed to cancel our clinics, what that meant to us and more for the patients really, because if you had problems which you wanted to discuss maybe next week in clinic, all of a sudden you're being advised not to come unless it's a major problem. Within the hospital itself, if anything wasn't like emergencies, things like surgery and stuff, that was all cancelled. People got redeployed. So some of my members of staff got redeployed to ITU to help out. If you had no ITU experience, you would be shadowing ITU staff. Uh, As the department as hematology had to give in our skills Mm. (laughs) per se. So what are the skills we had other than being a hypophilia specialist nurse? So if the time came and you needed to be redeployed, they will redeploy you appropriately to a place which suits you. And how, and how did you how did you find that? I know you've been in haemophilia for quite a while. I don't know the exact number of years. You have to remind me, but it must be strange all of a sudden being faced with this prospect of. Uh, okay, I've been a haemophilia nurse for this long, I'm a specialist in haemophilia, and all of a sudden you're having to think about some of the skills that you might have not used for a long time. I joined haemophilia in 2012, so it's been a long time in yeah outpatient kind of setting. And being told you need to go into an acute setting at times is a bit shocking to me. <laughs> I, I actually volunteered. And I was told I couldn't go since I was in charge of the department. So I'll probably be the last one to be pulled out. <laughs> uh, but 
I volunteered because my experience, my background experience is in cardiac and respiratory. And even after I joined hemophilia, every now and then I would do an extra shift. So I'm a bit rough, but not too, too rough. So I was ready for it, but opportunity never Came. I guess that's in some ways a slight relief, but uh, but you were too essential to the haemophilia operation one day. They couldn't let you go. <laughs> but what was that like watching, you know, obviously members of your team get redeployed as, you know, as a colleague working in that team? It, I can imagine it must be quite surreal suddenly watching people have to up and move to another department in the hospital. So what was really scary was, so let's look at the first lockdown. That was really scary because all of a sudden when the lockdown was announced and I'll tell you the truth, tooting was like a ghost town. We've got mm. massive parking areas here, which if you're here by eight in the morning, it's full, you cannot get parking, but that's the only opportunity I got to drive into work. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a bit scary. It, it looked, uh, more like what you'd expect in a movie. Yeah, I imagine it. Like you say, a, a proper ghost town. Yeah, proper ghost town. And you're meeting with some of your colleagues who've been redeployed or the ones who work in ANE. Literally, I remember seeing one of the matrons who worked in ANE, and you could literally tell the bags under his eyes. Mm. And this is not saying that he's coming from a night shift or this is working during the day. And people just looked worn out and uh, just what people were telling you, oh, it's, it's a bit too much. I think it was a shock to the system for most people. With our patients, there were two effects. Some people who would normally not communicate started communicating. Mm. And whether it was a bit of a panic situation, uh, which was good on their behalf, but because we then made sure they were. And some people were adamant, even if you needed to see them, they were like, I'm too scared about this. I'm not coming in. I'm rather going to stick it out at home. Yeah, of course. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I was speaking to April up in Newcastle for this episode, and she was saying that one of the biggest worries was that people with haemophilia who might be having acute problems and need to get the care from the haemophilia center would suddenly refrain from doing that because they were worried about coming to the hospital they thought it wasn't allowed but so did you did you find it a, somewhat a challenge trying to make sure that you got your haemophilia patients the care that they needed despite everything else that was going on yeah so that was a major challenge and i think we had to think fast of which i think most especially haemophilia centers had to think that way so updating um, our website just to put a bit more information so that those people who are not keen in, you know, attending can get a bit more clinic clinical advice, the minimum we can give. Mm. Uh, they can access it online. And obviously, if it's something they can't deal with, then they'll have to uh come in and i think there was one of our lead clinicians did a small video if i'm not mistaken just to say if they are if you're experiencing any problems do call the center is still open working hours and we can advise you further if you need to come in yeah don't be afraid we're still here you can get in touch <laughs> still there 
so one of the things which changed as well was as nurses, we've got telephone clinics. So our own clinics we run, which are virtual, they increased because we had to take on some of the patients who were booked in for face-to-face, -face, the milder patients, and do their clinics virtually alongside the consultants. The other thing was use of, um, you must know of attend anyway. So I've used it in my previous role in the previous trust I worked in, but here they kind of prioritized who they were giving it because I think the broadband, the trust broadband was uh, going crazy with everyone trying to use video links. Physios had access to it and I think parts of pediatrics. I think it's really good because it kind of gives you that virtual feel of a proper clinic other than using things like Skype and because you've got a proper waiting room. It kind of simulates the experience of going into the hospital uh, uh, more than just jumping on a Zoom call, for example, right? It feels a bit more like a, an event. Yeah, and it can actually tell you that uh, if there's a delay in the clinic, that you there's a 15-minute wait or something like that. People move to virtual clinics and... Um, some people liked it, some didn't. The good thing I liked, I managed to get remote access. Though in my role, I can't really work from home. At times like this, when you're finishing late, you can stop work up to some point and finish off at home if you've got time to, to do that. So that's one thing I, I liked about that. You could always finish other stuff. And gives us also an opportunity to start updating some of our uh, policies and protocols just because things have changed and I, I doubt very much whether we will ever go back to what it was like before so we need to look at amending our policies obviously we don't know what the future holds and uh, I think the other thing was uh, once you'd seen the patient virtually you didn't it was kind of a bit like Next appointment in six months' time. Should I book it as a virtual or face-to-face? -face? You'll be back to normal or not? And I wonder, I wonder if some of them are like, even if we are back to normal, can we still do it virtually? Oh, a lot of people like that. A lot of people like the, the patients especially. A lot of people gave me posters like, well, actually, it's easier for us. They were working. And you managed to get... You know where you get a lot of DNAs with telephone appointments? Almost everyone was answering because they were at home. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you see? So the attendance was right up. Factor usage was right down. Yeah, no one out having bleeds. <laughs> no one having bleeds, no one having surgeries. That, such that we were even questioned, you know, that like, how come your factor usage has gone down use this much first quarter how what's happened and yeah. you know having to explain all that thank you very much for giving up your time one day it's uh, it's been great to have you on and and hear you talk about your experience uh, you know the the mighty south of the river uh, <laughs> hemophilia center i'm sure that having moved centers and then suddenly being faced with adapting your practice because of everything that's gone on sounds like it's been a it's been a whirlwind for you what i can say is it tests your strength the fact that i'm still standing yeah <laughs> absolutely 
I couldn't agree more, Wondai. And I think that is a really lovely point to bring this heme cast to a close. The past year has most definitely tested our strength as individuals and as a community, but we are indeed still standing. The stories shared in this episode are just a handful of examples of how members of the Bleeding Disorders community have adapted to the changes and faced down the challenges of the past year. And I take my hat off to all of you. Thank you to all of our guests for speaking with me today. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And thank you to our sponsors who make HemeCast possible. We have plenty more HemeCasts planned over the coming weeks, so make sure you are following, subscribed, all that good stuff. And of course, happy World Hemophilia Day. <laughs>